What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As a librarian who has a master's degree in children's literature, one of the most common questions I get asked is, how can I help my child love to read? I often encounter parents or other concerned adults who really want an answer to this perplexing question. For those who lack basic motivation and interest for reading, my A number one recommendation to all adults is to make reading interesting. So often in schools, reading is uninteresting and not connected to students' needs and likes. To combat this, adults should let students explore reading that really interests them. I tell my students in my children's literature courses that there is no such thing as a non-reader, only a reader who hasn't found the right book yet. So one of the best things we can do as adults is to let children explore the wide range of reading out there that interests them until they are able to find that one text that opens the amazing world of books to them. One particular thing to note is that oftentimes this means we as adults need to step back a little and let our children explore things we may not feel are of the best quality. I, for one, really don't like to see children reading the latest book featuring their favorite television personality. But if that exploration leads them to understand how interesting and fun reading can be, then I'm for it. I've never met a real reader who doesn't move on from the lower quality once they find out how cool reading is. My own personal trajectory was from Nancy Drew to Dostoevsky, and I found that children given time will take a similar path. So supported by our guidance and interest, let's let children explore to their heart's content. And that's one way to help encourage reluctant readers straight from Rachel's world. This is Worlds Awaiting. Today we learn about developing literacy in the home. Are you a reader? What influence does your love of reading have on your family? Today, Dr. Amy Miner joins our host, Rachel Wadham. Dr. Miner is a professor of teacher education at BYU. She has her PhD in curriculum and instruction with an emphasis on social studies and democratic practices and has a master's in children's literature. She also helps elementary school teachers integrate the fine arts into their curriculum. Here's Rachel and Amy. Welcome, Amy. We're glad to have you here today. Thank you. You know, studies show that one of the best things to help kids with literacy is to have an environment in the home that is so conducive to those needs of literacy. So what do you think are some of the basic things that parents can do in their homes to really facilitate their children's literacy needs? That's a great question. I think the first thing they need to do is just to create resources in their home that kids can have access to. I was raised by two teachers, and there were books in my home all the time. And I remember coming home and asking my mom if I could do this book order in school. And she would say, once you've read all the books we already own, <laughs> then you can buy more. And I remember thinking, oh, my dad's a scientist. I can't read those books. you know. But we had so many books as a young girl. And I remember my mom reading to us. And when we would go on family trips, she would get books on tape. Let's pretend was the series and the... 1960s and 70s that we would listen to and we just we grew up knowing that this is something that we just did in our house we read and I remember watching my dad read and whenever he had free time 
he was reading. And it sent a message subtly as well as directly that given a choice, this is what I choose to do. And so I think we begin by the kind of modeling that we do and the kind of resources we have available. Um, I, as a young mom, I began really early. I actually had to create a book budget so that I didn't <laughs> overbuy the books. You know, food actually has to come first before buying books. But as young parents and as parents who are establishing our homes, you know, sometimes we think about the furniture and we think about the, the ambiance and the kinds of things that we're bringing into our home. We also need to think about the kind of literacies we're bringing in? Do we subscribe to a newspaper? Do our kids have access to different magazines and journals? And what kinds of magazines and journals are we putting in front of them? You know, does it, does it give them access to the world? And are we creating spaces to model how we engage with those kinds of resources? It also is about creating that same modeling for when kids are doing homework and nonfiction reading and informational text reading. Part of it for me was I was a student while being a mom. I went back to school. And so when I was working on homework, my kids were working on homework. And at first I thought, oh, I have to do my homework separate because I, it needs to be my time. But then I realized that if I were sitting at the kitchen table doing homework when my kids were doing homework, I was teaching them study skills and yeah. how we use time and how we create spaces to read and engage in these kinds of ideas. And I think that's a really important concept. I also am a huge believer in secondhand bookstores and public libraries. You know, when I had little kids, the summer reading program was my lifesaver. We not only did the public library, we did every bookstore in town, you know, one on Monday, one on Tuesday. It was a great way to expose my kids to new stories. It was a great way for me to find new books that I hadn't read. And we would sign up for the little competitions, you know, and I'd race them and see who could read the 30 books first. Or um, I also believe that we read what our kids are reading. You know, I have a friend who reads all the books that her kids are reading in high school. It was a little tricky when she had two in AP English at the same time. <laughs> now that, that is tricky. That was a lot of reading. But it was this idea of if these are, are issues and ideas that my kids are being exposed to, I want to be exposed to them so that then we can talk about those yeah. ideas. And one of the things she found is that as she read those books, the book became the safe place to have these larger conversations. And tough conversations. Very tough conversations. Whereas if a parent were to say, oh, let's talk about this issue, the kid would shut down, the parent wouldn't have the resources, but the book almost opened up a space and that avenue to then safely enter that as parent and child. Yeah, I think that really is important, just the breadth of it. I know I know so many people that I've engaged with that they say, oh, I'm not a reader, or my parents weren't readers. And what they are meaning is my parents didn't read novels. They right. didn't read fiction. But that's really not what literacies of this nature are about. It's about everything. I, yeah. I have a brother-in-law who mainly reads computer technical manuals. That's that's his stuff. He loves wow. it, and I, I don't do it. <laughs> I, yeah, that's not my my forte for reading. But he has a son that that's the, that's the mm-hmm. kind of reading he does. They love to read coding manuals and you know all this type of stuff. And I that's great. That's yeah. wonderful. So engaging in the diversity, I think, is significantly important for parents to understand that just because you don't read a novel doesn't mean you right. don't read. Well, and help them understand the different purposes for reading. Exactly. We all read for different purposes at different times. I think the challenge with that as a parent is to find out where to go to find the good stuff. Mm. And um, I found as a parent and also as a teacher, um, both roles, that the teachers really play a critical role. And when I was struggling to find something for a child to read, the teacher was the great resource. I'd go and say, what can I find for a 10-year-old 
that engages in these ideas, dinosaurs or whatever it was. Yeah. And the teacher always had wonderful things. Um, my philosophy is become best friends with your child's teacher, become best friends with the school library, and become best friends with the public library because those people know where to go. And I also think with that is um, redefining the way we celebrate through literacy. Ooh, good point. You know, I, um, I have... I have a child with some health issues that makes Halloween a really difficult holiday. And if the, as, as soon as we realized that that was a difficult thing, I went to this child and said, I'll trade you. You turn in all the Halloween candy and we'll go buy books. And it was such an easy transaction. And this child got to participate in the cultural stuff of the holiday. But the very next day, we were at the bookstore buying books that mattered to this child. And likewise with Christmas, when we've got grandparents who live across the country or siblings or aunts and uncles, what can I give this child? My, I have a book list always waiting of things that they can do. You know, I always tell my students who are becoming teachers, the very first thing you do as a pre-service teacher is create your wish list. <laughs> create that list and publish it on social media. Put it outside your classroom door. Send it home to parents. Let everybody know the books you want. And I yeah. tell my children the same thing. Start creating that wish list. I have a daughter who just graduated from high school, and one of the wishes on her wish list was a children's book that she was read to in fifth grade. And she said, I just want my own copy. <laughs> you know, and that's what I gave her for graduating from high school. Because that mattered to her. So creating celebrations that are literacy-based, why not create those as part of your family traditions? Yeah, yeah that's that's one of the things um, that my own mother does with her grandchildren is that she will... Um, she will send a book to her grandchildren, and I will send book to my nieces and nephews for their birthdays. And then we get on Skype and oh, read it together. Love it. And I have my own copy, and they have their copy, and then I can, you know, say turn the page and that type of thing. And so, not only are we engaging around the book, but they have their own copy in front of them because yeah. Skype doesn't portray books right. or oral reading very well. You can't hold up the book and see them. It doesn't work that way. But if they have their own copy, and then it's nice because they've heard it read by me or my yeah. mom, and they engage with it at a different level. Yeah. And then they go back to it and revisit it. And not only do they revisit the literacy and the story and the great things, but they also revisit those great feelings yeah. that they had yeah. with us sharing. Well, and I think it creates a conversation for them. I have... High school age daughters, I have a daughter who's 12, and the conversation, the very first thing they talk about when grandma comes over is, did you read this? And grandma gives them that book, and they're almost having a mini book club right there on the spot. And it's so fun to see three generations talking about the literary techniques, you know, and the historical background behind a book, where otherwise, I'm afraid we sometimes don't give these generations the topic to talk about. Mm -hmm. And when we engage in that kind of sharing, you know, I read books all the time that I'm sharing with my mother-in-law and my grandparents. And that's the conversation. You know, I just finished reading Unbroken. You know, it's, yeah. it's one that everybody's yeah. reading right now. But I have a, a grandfather, a great-grandfather of my husband, who served in World War II. And it was a wonderful bridge to go to him and say, was it really like this? And that generation need something to talk to us about as well. We need to validate their stories and they need to inform us. And so yeah. in sharing in these literacy celebrations and making that part of the traditions of our family, yeah. we're also bridging and creating avenues for communication that yeah. I think wouldn't be there otherwise. Well, and the reality to me too is that the literacy experience 
can be very dependent on the person that's having it, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So you know, there'll be lots of times where we'll, you know, I'll love a book and my best friend will hate it. Right. And it's just because of the way that we relate to the to the text. And so I think in some ways it's it adds to that kind of democratic social literacy that we're mm-hmm. trying to build to be able to see people interacting with the same text in different ways and to understand that my feelings may not necessarily be your feelings and that doesn't negate my feelings right but it helps me to understand yours better yeah and that kind of makes me think about the first time as an adult I engaged in a book club I'm a huge believer in book clubs I'm a huge believer in mother-daughter book clubs and mother-son book clubs and any of that kind of thing that we can create. But I was living in um, Texas, and I was a part of a book club with nine women, and we had a lawyer, a a doctor, a transcriptionist, a couple of teachers, a couple of stay-at-home moms, a nurse. And this group became such a wonderful, safe place for me to explore new ideas and new thinking. We represented four different religions, lots of different phases of life and seasons, and One of the things that I loved about that was not only was I engaging in those kind of conversations, but I was also modeling for my children that given free time, this is what I choose to do. I could go see a movie. I could go out to dinner with friends. I could go play games with friends. But I'm choosing to engage in literacy-based conversations. And they can see then how that blesses my life. Mom, what did you learn? What did you read? What did they say? Did they agree? You know, and the other thing that's been kind of fun is as I've been exploring and trying to find new books to read, I have go-to people now. I have a friend who always says, oh, you'll love that, but skip pages such and such. Because <laughs> she knows yeah. what I like and what I don't like. And I've created a, a support system of literacy that's bigger and more broad than my own community. And that I think that's true. We need to help our kids create those kind mm-hmm. of literacy communities where they can talk about what they love and and not just, you know, books, but movies and games yes. and all of those kinds yep. of things because those discussions are what empower us to be more engaged in all the aspects of our literacy right. lives. Well, and I think today we've got a lot of avenues for kids to talk about that too. The blogs, the social media, you know, why not have them blogging about what they're reading instead of the video game they're playing? It, it just changes the way we communicate with each other. And, and we already have those authentic audiences available. Let's tap into them and really engage our kids into them. That's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Amy, for joining us today. You're welcome. That was our host, Rachel Wadham, speaking with BYU educator, Dr. Amy Miner. Next, we're pulling a switch on Rachel. She usually does the interviewing, but today our Clara Goodwin talks with Rachel about her journey to becoming the juvenile literature librarian at the Harold B. Lee Library at Brigham Young University. We're here today with Rachel Wadham. Rachel Wadham is the Education and Juvenile Collections Librarian at Brigham Young University. Rachel holds a master's degree in library science from the University of North Texas and a master's in education from Pennsylvania State University. She's also an instructor of children's and adolescent literature at the university and is a professional literary critic and a published author. Additionally, Rachel is a musician who plays eight different instruments and an artist who creates with fiber, fabric, and yarn. So Rachel is with us now. Thank you for coming and welcome. Glad to be here. So Rachel, you're the Education and Juvenile Collections Librarian at BYU. So can you kind of talk about the position and what you do? I am a librarian in an academic library. And while librarians in different kinds of libraries have similar things they do, academic libraries are unique in that we specialize in one 
area or one discipline. So we're called subject librarians, so we focus on just that subject. So my subject, of course, is education and juvenile collections, and it's our job to make sure that all of the faculty and students in that discipline have all of the library services they need. It's also our job to help them to make sure that they have access to those, so we want to make sure that they have um, help finding what they need and also instruction to make sure that they, they have connections to what they need. So we really specialize in that individual kind of subject or area. But beyond that, if you just think of a librarian and any of your experiences with librarian, that's kind of what we do. We answer questions, we help people find things, we provide resources for people. So specifically, we're just fo- I'm just focused on education, but generally I am a librarian who does all those great librarian things. <laughs> I love it. So before you started uh, getting to the library business, you were doing some other things. What can you tell me about those? Yes, I I had a really interesting path to becoming a librarian. I started out as a music major. So when I was in school, my plan was to be a performing musician for the rest of my life. So I was going to be in an orchestra and I was going to perform and do all of those kinds of things. I realized that that's a really hard life. <laughs> And it's challenging. And that while I loved music, it wasn't going to be my profession. I didn't want to make money at it. So after that, I moved into more of a therapy role and was looking at doing music therapy and also working in schools with a variety of children that were struggling in a variety of ways. And when I got into that job, I realized how much I loved working with kids and how much I loved helping kids become better. One of the programs I worked on uh, in that part of my life was a reading program, helping kids who were struggling with reading. And I remembered how much I had struggled with reading as a child and uh, how hard school had been for me. And I thought, I really, that's what I want to do. That's the kind of thing. I want to help kids who are struggling with that kind of thing. Because if we can help kids learn to love learning, if we can help kids to be strong readers, we've actually set them up for life. So I really saw that as a way that I could help kids a lot more broadly and a lot better if I focused just on that. So I kind of turned it around and started focusing just on that and decided that one of the best ways to do that would be to become a librarian. I think there is something really magical about libraries, and there's something that libraries can do that we can't always do in classrooms. So I, I found my right job. I found, I found who I am, <laughs> my very perfect place in life uh, right here at BYU. <laughs> <laughs> and did you ever think, I know you said you wanted to be a musician, but did you ever think you would even consider when you were younger you'd be a librarian? I didn't, which is really, really odd because... Because when I was very young, I was about probably five or six, um, a family friend came up to me and asked me, what do you want to be when you when you grow up? And, you know, family friends do that all the time. And any normal five or six year old girl is going to say, I want to be a princess or, you know, if they're very ambitious, I want to be a veterinarian or maybe even a teacher or something like that, or maybe a firewoman or something like that. But I said to this family friend, I said, when I grow up, I want to sit in the top of a very big building and I will sit in a really comfy chair behind a big mahogany desk and below me will be books and people will come and ask me questions and I will answer them. And that's what I told this family friend. (laughs) My mother tells that with great glee. And I think at the time I was probably thinking of one of those kind of mystical gurus that sits on the top of the hill and kind of floats 
10 inches above the ground and, you know, the people climb up the hill and, <laughs> and ask them the questions and they, you know, they have expound their great wisdom or whatever. And I, and I knew at the time that I didn't have all that great wisdom in my own head. So I needed the books to, to expound, you know, the great philosophical wisdom of the world to these people. So as I look back on it now, I kind of think, what was I thinking those years that I was wanting to be a performing musician? It's just like, you know, those were my, my off years or, or something, my, my rebel years while I was trying to break out of the mold, <laughs> you know, do something rebellious, like be a musician, <laughs> and finally realized, you know, this is really my calling, and this is the place I want to be. And I tell people, I say, one of the best characteristics of a librarian is they want to know everything. So the reality is I probably could have been perfectly happy majoring in anything, and I probably could have been perfectly happy doing any profession on the earth. But you become a librarian, so you can't do everything. I think in some ways I am doing everything, and I'm doing everything I love and I'm interested in. But it's just in one nice, neat little package. (laughs) And I know you do do everything. You play eight instruments. You work with your fibers and fabrics, yarn. So can you tell me all about all those different hobbies you have? Well, that is one of my things. I have tons of hobbies. Um, As I said, in school, I was a performing musician. So I play the oboe and the English horn. And then, of course, in that process, you always have to learn the piano. Then there is a very strong religious connection to the organ. And so I wanted to learn how to play the organ because I love that kind of power of that instrument. Then I learned how to play the guitar. And my mother was born and raised in North Carolina. So I figured I needed to learn how to play the banjo. Then I decided that I really like those kind of powerful instruments. So I started learning to play the bagpipes, which is a really powerful instrument. And you can't play it everywhere. So you have to have other instruments to play other places. Wow, (laughs) how did you even learn how to play that? Yeah, got a T. Got a, got an instrument. <laughs> That's the way I've done it all the way. Um, and then I also started um, about two years ago, starting to learn play the harp. So I just love I love music. Music brings such a, a powerful meaning to life. And I feel about it very similarly to the way I feel about books and literature. Um, I feel that it really it, it just adds something to our lives. It adds a really interesting aesthetic component. I think sometimes especially in our society, we get too much in our heads and we start thinking with with our heads too much and we forget about our hearts. And things like music and literature bring the heart into all of this. And so I think that's where... That's where I focus on those kinds of other things like music and like my uh, my artwork, which is I quilt and I knit and I crochet. So I create things with, you know, fiber, fabric and yarn more than anything, just because I, you know, I like the touch of things and I like to create something. I think at the very basis, we're all creators. We all want to create something. I think that's a very foundational human need is to be a creator. Um, sometimes we do that through different forms, but all of those arts, all of those artistic kinds of things, I think, provide us with something that makes us really, truly human, and we all need to connect to that. And along with that, you also write books. You're a published author. So I do. what are the titles of those books? How did you get into writing those? You know, I when I say I'm a published author, it's kind of slightly differently because I I write and publish more for an academic audience, so I write for teachers and librarians. So my published works are really focused on that kind of audience. So it's not like I write fiction or children's books or anything like that. I actually do write that kind of stuff, but I it's my stuff. <laughs> I have yet I have yet to get it out there and show it to anybody. Um, I do I do write creatively, but it's 
it tends to be a very personal thing. So I, I haven't got that out of there. But my published works are more for um, for that audience. And again, that kind of connects to my need. I, I really want to help people be better people and to impact the lives of children in really unique ways. So the books I write do that. For example, my latest one that just came out this year um, is called Integrating Children's Literature into the Common Core State Standards. The Common Core State Standards are the new standards that have been uh, implemented kind of nationally for education. And so my colleague and I, Terry Young, who wrote the book, we are focusing on how can you use children's literature, how can you use books within those Common Core State Standards to help children not only learn the strategies of reading that are necessary, but also how do you learn to love to read and how do you get that passion and love for reading? So how do we balance those two things and how do we use children's books to do that? All right. And really quickly, we're almost out of time, but how do you find the time to do all of this? You have so many responsibilities. (laughs) How do you do it? You know, people always ask me that question because I'm interested in so much and I do so many different things. But I tell them the reality is you find time for the things that you love. And I, you know, if people come to me and say, oh, I'd love to do that, but I just don't have the time, I say to them, well, it's not that you don't have the time, it's just that you don't have the passion for it. And so you are not willing to find the time to do it. And I'm doing it constantly. Like I, I read about 350 to 400 books a year and everybody says, how do you read that many books a year? And I say, <laughs> I always have a book with me. Like there's one sitting here on the table in the, in the studio <laughs> that I brought with me. I always have a book with me. And it's amazing how much in those snatches of time, um, how you can just, you know, take a minute and read a few pages and how much you can actually get done you know, my hobbies and stuff I'll, you know, I'll do in 10 or 15 minute increments. And just when I get a few moments and it's amazing how much you can do if you just do something consistently, even with small amounts of time. So 10 or 15 minutes, you can easily do something. And if you just do it every day, then by the end of the year, that all adds up and you've got a, you know, you've got a great kind of context for everything you do. So I do balance and try to figure out how, how to do things, but just small snatches of time consistently, you can do anything that you're passionate about. All right, Rachel Wadham, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Clara Goodwin speaking with our own Rachel Wadham, host of Worlds Awaiting. Next, we'll hear from a mayor who will share his take on literacy. He's going to tell us about his favorite book from childhood and he'll discuss the importance of reading. Here's Taylor Miranda of our staff talking with John R. Curtis, mayor of Provo, Utah. What is your favorite children's book? Yeah, I was afraid you were going to ask me that <laughs> because it's to, to single one out. But as I thought about it uh, and I think back, the one that really tore my emotions and my feelings and that I just remember so clearly uh, is where the red fruit grows. So it's a story about a boy and his dogs and, and hunting and, 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 the, and the companionship with this dog. And, It was just very uh, memorable to me, and the emotions that that boy experienced were so imprinted on me that it's left a very long lasting impact on me. So what do you think makes a book good? For me, um, it it kind of, there's a couple of different answers to that. So there's a lot of times where I just want to leave this planet, right? And I want to be able to pick up a book and, and it just captures me and I leave and, and, and I'm there in the book. And um, a lot of times that, that just brings so much relaxation to me and, and stepping away from today's worries and stresses um, 
but I'd probably say that's my number one answer. Now, there are other things too. Some of my favorite books have been real life accounts of, of heroism and things like that that inspire me. And so, to the extent that a book maybe not be as captivating, but it but could be as inspiring, I would also say that's very important. You know, as your perspective as a mayor, why do you think it's so important for, for children in general to become good readers and to become literate individuals? So I believe reading will give children and adults um, a, a peephole to the world that we wouldn't otherwise have. And uh, you can see things and experience things and, and therefore um, our dreams are bigger and our visions are grander uh, if we read. And um, I think that if I had to erase everything from my mind that came to me from books, I'd be a, a very shallow person. And I don't think I'd be able to, to leave the city in the way that I am. I don't think I'd be the father that I am. Um, it took all that away from me. So the answer is, I think it makes us much deeper, uh, meaningful people. That was Taylor Miranda and the mayor of Provo, Utah, John R. Curtis. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.